This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Footnotes, if that's what we're calling it. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, here to bring you the latest news from a black Christian perspective. Coming up in this episode, I'm going to talk about the Oscars and the movie Green Book. We'll peer into the political theater that was Michael Cohen's testimony before a congressional committee. And I'll talk about the end of Black History Month and how we continue to celebrate and commemorate black history throughout the year. So please keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. Before we get into this week's news, some announcements and updates. Number one, some personal news. I successfully defended my prospectus and I am now officially ABD. That's right. I am released now into the wilds of research for my PhD. If you're not familiar with the process, which I really wasn't before I started the program, uh, what happens when you enroll in an academic history PhD and many other PhD programs, you go through coursework, which typically takes about two years. You're doing seminars, you're reading books on books on books, and then you're coming to class with uh, reviews and reflections, and then you're discussing those books with, with your uh, cohort and your classmates and the professor. And then after that, you take this really nerve-wracking test that makes you not want to ever take a test ever again in your life, and that's called comprehensive exams, uh, sometimes qualifying exams in, in other fields. But basically, you have to memorize information about several hundred books and then be able to, at least in history, talk about the way historians have talked about a particular issue or historical moment like the civil rights movement or a certain president or things like that. So I passed comps last fall and it was as nerve wracking as they said. But then after that, the next step is you write your perspectives, which is essentially your proposal for your dissertation, um, basically saying to your committee, this is what I intend to study. Here's my plan. Here's the timeline. Here's the chapter outline. Here are the sources I'm going to use, et cetera, et cetera. So I wrote that. Uh, went through several versions and edits, and then finally sat down before my committee of uh, one, two, three, four different people at the University of Mississippi, and I successfully defended it. They they gave me the thumbs up, and so that means I am officially in the dissertation writing stage right now. Uh, the only next step is really writing the dissertation and then defending it to finally earn the PhD. So that's going to be a long process, at least another year and a half or two, but it's nice to sort of be on uh, my topic. And I'll talk more about what that topic is later as I go uh, and do some more research and I have some more to say. But that was really cool. And now I am ABD, which stands for Albert Dissertation. So that basically means you can do most everything a PhD does. Essentially, you can teach so I look forward to doing that at the University of Mississippi while I'm still researching the dis dissertation at some point. And then 
who knows what's next? A lot of people are asking me what I'll do after this degree. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out what I'll be when I grow up, but just wanted to give you a brief update on that. Also wanted to talk about the book tour. So I don't know if you've heard, but I wrote a book. It's called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. And it's been out just over a month. It came out January 22nd. And it, I've been a ton of different places on this book tour, which is really interesting because uh, basically when you're an author, at least in the process I went through, you book all your book tour dates. And so we only had a handful, but once the book came out, there were a lot more requests to come to different cities. If you would like me to come to your city, my schedule is pretty full now, but on the off chance that I might have an opening, you can go to my personal website, jamartisby.com. There's a speaker request form. Just fill that out. It'll come to uh, me and and we'll see if we can work it out there logistically. But anyway, I've been pretty recently to Cincinnati and I went there to the historic mercantile library. It's a gorgeous building. It's uh, a library. Before they had public libraries, distinct professions and guilds would have their own libraries. And so this was one of them, but it, it, it hung around there. And what was remarkable about this one, first of all, it was packed for a book talk. There were over 200 people there. One of them was a black man, and his name is Leslie Edwards, and he is one of the original Tuskegee Airmen. He's 94 years old, still as spry and as sharp and as wise as ever. He came a bit early, and so I got to sit down and talk with him. And he told me the story about his family. Uh, he's Unitarian, and it, it was just a really interesting story about how his grand grandfather had been barred from the Unitarian Church in Cincinnati because of race, but then through a series of happenstances, they basically figured out the story and went to make amends and uh, gave him a, a headstone because he happened to be buried in the church's uh, graveyard and just a really neat story. So Leslie Edwards told me about all that, but then he stayed for the book talk and he has my book. So I'm just blown away. If you want to see a picture of Leslie Edwards, go to my Instagram account at Jamar Tisby and scroll through. And he is the very handsome looking man in a uh, military hat. We're standing next to each other. It's just one of the biggest honors I've had on this book tour to meet one of the original Tuskegee Airmen. Moving on, I want to talk about the podcast. So, of course, our regular podcast is Pass the Mic with my co-host, Tyler Burns. We're always asking you for more reviews because reviews give us more views. And so we thank you. We've, we're up to 647 right now, which is great. We would love more. Let's get up to a thousand. But this one is from Katina Stone Butler. She says, I love the representation as a Christian African-American woman, wife, and mother. Thank you, Katina. We hope you do find some representation here. Even though we're both guys, we try to make sure that we honor women and especially black women. And along those same lines, Shanae Poo, she says, these men drop gems by the second. I truly thank God for the way they wrestle with the word, speak hard truths, and love God and people. Their voices are so necessary. And as a black woman, I celebrate the way they both affirm and challenge me as a Christian every episode. Thank you, fellows. We see your dedication. And we see you, too, Shanae Poo. Thank you so much for leaving a review. Look at all those rhymes. You didn't know I was a rapper. And then lastly, uh, driving a bug. These brothers are a great find. Yes, please more footnotes with Jamar. So if you, this is episode four of 
whatever this is. We're calling it footnotes for now. And so on previous episodes, I've asked for input and feedback. Do you want me to keep doing this? Is it helpful or not? I've been on a bit of a hiatus when the book dropped. I, you know, it was just a storm of activity and I couldn't just sort of get into a routine. And I'm still not sure if I can do it. It's not like I should be adding more to my plate right now. Not at all. But it's something I enjoy. I'm, I'm a bit of a news junkie at this point, and I have a lot of opinions on the things that I read. And also, the the thing that really gets me going and motivates me is a lot of other people have opinions, but they're coming from a perspective that I don't think is helpful. And, and these are other Christians, too. So part of me just wants another voice out there from a Christian perspective, but maybe a little bit different than you might hear from some more mainstream outlets or individuals. So I'd like to keep doing this, but it entails a lot of work and a lot of research. So I don't know, maybe if you're interested, um, let us know. Like if you want to be, I don't know what you would call it, a production assistant or something. Basically, uh, we would communicate about which headlines or stories we want to cover this week. And then this person would help me find all the facts and the data, just names, dates, places, brief summaries, those kinds of things. So then I can really focus on giving some what I hope would be helpful insight and perspective. Not that everybody has to agree or follow it, but just another perspective. That's what we're trying to do here, both with Pass the Mic, Pass the Mic and with Footnotes. So if you're interested, email us at admin at thewitnessbcc.com, admin at thewitnessbcc.com. Let us know if you're interested in this production assistant job. People of color, especially black women, are all encouraged to apply, but whoever is willing and available, we will consider. I don't know if it'll work. I'm just throwing it out there. This is all one big experiment. We might do one episode and decide, no way, Jose, this is not going to work. Maybe it, it takes off and it's really good. Who knows? Speaking of reviews, though, leave a review for The Color of Compromise. If you have the book, please do go to Amazon.com and leave a review. We're up to about 76 now, which is pretty good. Uh, but I'd love to get it up over 100. And again, just like the podcast, those reviews help us to get um, more views, more people can see it. It pops up on, you know, recommended reading for them or also bought with this book, all that kind of stuff just increases visibility. And if you appreciated the book, I don't know if enjoyed is the right word when we're talking about racism and, and the church's complicity in it. But if you appreciated the info in the book and it, and it kind of helped spur some thoughts, let others know, write a quick review on Amazon. It'll only take you a minute and it'll help other people see it. Last on the announcement before we get into the, the news for this week. I want to keep reminding you about the Witness National Conference. The theme is continuing the 400-year journey of black joy and justice. You probably know that in 1619, 20 and odd Negroes were brought to the coast of colonial Virginia, and uh, that's widely sort of bookmarked as what as the start of what became race-based chattel slavery. And now it's 2019, so it's been 400 years since that fateful date. And we want to think about that. And we want to think about the fact that throughout the history of people of African descent in North America, we have been fighting for justice. We have been fighting for human justice. We have been fighting for civil rights. We've been engaging in what historians call the black freedom struggle. That struggle continues today. It didn't end in 1964 or in the civil rights movement. We're still in the midst of it. But that's not the whole story about black people. That's not the whole story about our existence. 
We also have done incredible things to cultivate joy. We are wonderfully humorous in our art. We have creative arts, and we'll get to that in a moment when we talk about the Oscars. And so we want to also talk about the joy of being a person of African descent, the joy of being black, even in this country, America, which was founded with white supremacist roots. We can still laugh. We can still love. We can still enjoy life. So save the date. It's going to be October 4th and 5th. The city is Chicago. We'll have more details about venue and pricing upcoming, but I want you to block out October 4th and 5th in Chicago. Also, please pray for this event. Uh, we want it to be a time of refreshing for folks. We want folks to be energized and rejuvenated and equipped to go back out into wherever you are. And if you are a person of color, it's it's almost impossible to sort of maneuver in this country without being a minority in some context, whether the school or the workplace or somewhere else. And so we want you to be equipped for that. We also want you to know you're not alone and pray for this, that we would be able to accomplish that miss mission. Also, We'll be fundraising soon, so please consider donating. We'll be having specific sort of fundraising events coming up, uh, leading up to October and the conference. The easiest way to donate is just through PayPal. Uh, you can also go to our website, thewitnessbcc.com, and there's a donate button at the top menu bar. It's in this beautiful brownish gold color, so you can't miss it, and we would appreciate any sort of concrete material financial support you can lend to this endeavor so thanks that's the news and announcements for this week let's get to the news the 2019 oscars occurred just a little while ago and a while back there was a hashtag on social media called oscars so white in 2015 in fact and it was started by a black woman named april rain and she was just commenting on how many of the awards went to white people despite the fact that incredible films and incredible art had had been made that year and have been made for all of time by people of color and yet the academy the people who chose the winners was almost all white. And then the winners, of course, are almost all white. And it has been that way for the 90 plus year history of the Oscars. And so that began really good discussions. I mean, it will really continued and amplified discussions that were already happening, but made them much more public, much more pressing, much more urgent, along with all the other current events going on in America. And so uh, the, the Academy and, may, and Hollywood in general were, were making some really intentional moves to have some more representation, especially in the award winners. And when you looked at 2019, instead of the Oscars so white hashtag, in many ways, you might have been able to use the Oscars so black hashtag, which is a nice, refreshing change of pace. Why do I say that? Well, to kick off the night, you had Regina King, a black woman who has been doing the thing for decades. She won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in If Beale Street Could Talk. She gave a wonderful uh, acceptance speech. She was ready for it, and it was about time. Regina King is a queen in acting, and this is well-deserved, but she's not the only one. Ruth E. Carter, another black woman, won for best costume design, and you guessed it, Black Panther, of course. I mean, just, just you can visualize in your mind right now the the outfits that they were wearing all throughout the movie uh, that were just gorgeous. They were colorful. They were authentic. They were unique. They were futuristic and yet uh, classic. 
It was amazing work, but Ruthie Carter's been doing this for decades too. And so she won the Oscar for Best Costume Design, and she's also the first black woman to win in this category. And that's not the only first. Another black woman, Hannah Beachler, won for Best Production Design for, yet again, Black Panther. She's also the first black woman to win in this category. So congratulations to Regina King, Ruthie Carter, Hannah Beachler for all your black girl magic that you are displaying in Hollywood. Ladies, keep up the great work. We hope to see more winners just like you coming soon. And one more black winner of note that we have to mention, Mr. Spike Lee. That's right. The legendary director, Spike Lee, He won for Best Adapted Screenplay for his film, Black Klansman, which he also directed. It's his first Oscar. Now, he got an honorary Oscar in 2015, but this is the first Oscar that he won in a competitive category. And when you think of this man's filmography, it's like, really? This is the first time he won? But yet, indeed, it was. But there was a bit of controversy, Uh, uh, you know, at the biggest award of the night is the uh, best picture. That means overall best film. And many people thought that uh, the actual winner of the 2019 Oscar for best picture uh, maybe shouldn't have won. Not a lot of people were happy with it. And so the 2019 Oscar winner for best picture went to Green Book. Now, If you don't know about the movie, you probably do, but just a quick recap is based on a true story, and the title comes from an actual book called The Negro Motorist Green Book, and it's named uh, after the author, Victor Hugo Green, who published the Green Book from 1936 to 1966, and basically... In the Jim Crow era, black people couldn't just travel around and stop at any gas station, restaurant, or hotel or motel. Many of them did not allow black people. And so the Green Book was a guide published annually that let black people know where it was safe to stop, what places would accept black people and serve them. And so it was really a big deal. I mean, it could save your life. It could save you from imprisonment or a beating or at least a very rude and perhaps traumatic encounter with racism. And the the plot of the movie Green Book is sort of uh, arises from this issue, this dilemma that black put, black people couldn't travel freely in the Jim Crow era. And so there's this black man named Don Shirley, who's from the North. He's a classical pianist, and he's on tour in the Jim Crow South. Of course, Don Shirley knows he can't just go anywhere he wants, even though he's an incredibly talented artist and he's on tour. So he hires he, he hires a white chauffeur nicknamed Tony Lip Vallelonga, who's a bouncer who's looking for work, and he becomes Shirley's chauffeur. And the film is basically a road trip story uh, over the course of several months, and it's about how their relationship grew and what they encountered and how they kind of changed each other on the way. Now, the problem with this film, well, problems, because there are many. First of all, the Shirley family, the real-life relatives of Don Shirley, says they were not consulted at all about the film. And therefore, they were not happy with the depiction of their relative, nor of the general plot line uh, throughout the whole movie. So that's a big deal. When you have relatives and descendants of the main character, you don't consult them. 
and they're not happy with their product. I mean, if I was making a film about someone, and in fact, I write in, in my dissertation, I'm writing about someone, I'm trying to make sure that I'm accurately representing them. Not that you can't say things that aren't controversial or that the family might not like um, to be revealed for the sake of sort of truth or storytelling, but you at least want to consult them and make sure that it's a product that's accurate and authentic as much as possible. So that's a big problem. Another problem, it, it might not sound like one at first because Mahershala Ali, who plays Don Shirley, he won an Oscar for the film. But for what? He won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Supporting. Think about this. This is the Green Book. The whole reason uh, this film was could even be made because the whole story revolves around Don Shirley as this black classical pianist on tour. You would think the film would be centrally about him. Therefore, if Ali won an Oscar, it would be for Best Actor in a leading role. But no, he won for Best Actor in a supporting role, which tells you precisely one of the central issues with the movie is that it's focused on Viggo Mortensen's character who plays Tony Vallelonga. It's focused on the white character, not the black man. And so that's a huge issue. Lastly, and I'll get into more of that, like like the, the depiction in the film, but there's one other fact, one other problem to note with Green Book winning the Oscar. It's that Spike Lee again lost out for Best Picture. And so I got a lot of this analysis from a very informative uh, perspective from a guy named Wesley Morris. He's co-host of the Still Processing podcast. And if you want to hear more in-depth info about the Green Book and its sort of problematic victory at this year's Oscars, definitely listen to that episode of Still Processing with Wesley Morris and his co-host. And basically, the way Morris breaks it down is he reminds us that in 2019, Green Book won, which means Spike Lee lost. Uh, his film Black Klansman was nominated for uh, Best Picture, and it lost to this white-centered racial reconciliation story uh, depicted in the Green Book. And that echoes something that happened almost 30 years ago in 1990. Spike Lee had another film nominated for Best Picture. That film was Do the Right Thing. A lot of people think Do the Right Thing was Spike Lee's best film. And it told a very gritty story about the hottest day on a block in Harlem, I think it was. And uh, just the the racial dynamics there between black people, Italian people, uh, Asian folks, it, it was all kinds of things, very complicated story. We remember Radio Rahim and, and Mookie. And if you haven't seen the film, definitely go see it. Uh, but it's not for kids. That's for sure. Um, that film in 1990, Do the Right Thing, lost to another film, Driving Miss Daisy. Now the parallels should be obvious, right? Uh, Black Klansman and Do the Right Thing, directed by Spike Lee, very honest, hard hitting, films about the complexities and the not easy solutions to racism, losing to sort of feel-good racial reconciliation movies like Green Book in 2019 and Driving Miss Daisy in 1990, which is uh, Morgan Freeman as the black chauffeur. So the roles are reversed, but they're still road trip stories. It's, it's an amazing parallel. And each time, the more hard-hitting film about race that's actually 
more realistic in terms of the complexity and the difficulties of dealing with these topics, it lost out to something that was much simpler and really designed, I don't know, maybe just like to make white people feel better. I don't mean that offensively, but, you know, who does this film like Green Book or Driving Miss Daisy really serve? Um, it lets folks off the hook for the most egregious forms of racism. My my whole point is that racism is more than – or curing racism or fighting racism, rather. It's more than having interracial friendships. Those aren't bad. As I always say, those are necessary but not sufficient. And so films like these leave people thinking that all we need to do to solve racial problems in America is just have more friends across the color line. Again, not a bad thing but not the only thing. The other thing it does is it basically leaves black people in these films as sort of flat, shallow characters. Now, they were well acted by Morgan Freeman or Mahershala Ali, but in my view, it leaves black people as the moral mules to bear the burden of walking with white people out of their racism. And what do black people get in return? Well, they become this sort of static figure that they have to be this stoic and righteous person that's really not allowed to be angry about racism, really not allowed to ever fall or exhibit foibles or flaws. And it, it makes for uh, a person who can't really depict complicated char- character traits because they, they have to be put up as these moral exemplars for white people to learn from. And what that does is leaves us with a search for the perfect victim or the perfect activist or whatever. And so many of us have heard of Rosa Parks. Many of us have not heard of Claudette Colvin. So Claudette Colvin basically did the same thing as Rosa Parks in refusing to give up her seat on a bus. But Claudette Colvin was a teenager. She was pregnant out of wedlock. She did not have sort of the perfect moral character to put up against white racism and segregation. Rosa Parks, who was, by the way, a lifelong activist, she didn't just decide one day not to move her seat on the bus. Um, she is depicted as much more respectable. And even in the present day, when we're looking at uh, police brutality and police-related killings of unarmed black people, there's always this push to say, well, you know, what is the black person's character and reputation? Basically saying, did they deserve it? And uh, there's really no room for a black person just to be a person. And all of us have weaknesses and flaws and, and um, you know, negative character traits and sins. But setting up black people in films like Green Book is, is almost perfect. Now, in this film, Don Shirley's de- depicted as really uptight and the white character is – Vallelonga is depicted as sort of loosening him up and, you know, they learn from each other. But I do think it's it just sets up a problematic dynamic that black people always have to be the virtuous ones, always have to be the perfect ones, always have to be the ones who sort of keep it together, even in the midst of egregious acts of racism and dehumanization. The other thing it does, and I'll wrap it up here for the Oscar uh, discussion. These films, which focus on interracial friendships and essentially the white character's journey, they do nothing to address the systemic and institutional justice that makes it necessary for someone like Don Shirley to have to hire a white driver and use the green book just to make his way around the country and bless people with his musical ability. So, I mean, these friendships, great. Like, it, learn from each other 
Uh, white people certainly will learn from people of color, and that's one of the best ways, really, for people to change is is through these relationships. When you put flesh and blood on someone who you have been taught to consider the other and lesser, uh, we can't get around the relational aspect of reconciliation, but we can't leave it there either. We have to talk about power. We got to talk about money. We have to talk about the, the processes and policies that are set up to reinforce racial injustice apart from anyone's intentions or feelings or motivations. And so that's why a film like Green Book winning the Oscar as well acted as it was, um, leaves us disappointed and why many people are calling it a snub. He is a racist, he is a con man, and he is a cheat. Those are the words of Michael Cohen, Donald Trump, the current president's longtime fixer, who's a lawyer, now disbarred, accused of many, many crimes. He's going to jail. He's caught. He got caught in his web of lies. And now he came clean. Uh, Michael Cohen addressed a congressional committee on his relationship with Donald Trump and his activities as an employee of the president. And boy, Cohen did not hold back. So I watched some of the proceedings, admittedly, not all of the eight hours. It was very long. And, uh, I, but I caught the highlights and I read many, many of the, the summaries and the reviews of it. And it was just hard hitting. I mean, if anyone is going to have the inside info on the president. It's his closest lawyer, his right-hand man, the guy he deployed to clean up his messes, for instance, paying $130,000 of hush money to uh, the adult film actor, uh, screen name, uh, stage name Stormy Daniels. That was Cohen's job. He's the one who was the fixer. He arranged these things. And so he knew all this stuff. He's in these meetings. He sees the documents. He's writing the documents. He's having the meetings. And in his um, congressional testimony, he was he was basically, you know, I don't know, trying to redeem himself. Uh, he, he tried to present himself as a man who realized the error of his ways, who wants to accept the punishment, but then move on for the sake of his family and uh, to collect whatever shreds of reputation he might have left. So he's testifying, in my view, really as a man with nothing to lose. We'll talk later about uh, people who have different views on that. But in light of that testimony, I went to Facebook, um, my, my author page. That's where you find the juiciest stuff. So if you want to keep up with some of my thoughts throughout the week, make sure to like my author page or follow it on Facebook. And uh, there were some, there were some really interesting quotes that hit me. One is the one I just read. He's a racist. He's a con man and he's a cheat. I think one of the things that didn't get much airtime because we kind of knew it. Um, and there was so much other stuff to pay attention to is that Michael Cohen really went in detail about the sort of casual racism that Donald Trump displayed throughout a decade of Cohen working for him. And a lot of this we know, but to hear it from, Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer and confidant, uh, it just, it just further sort of makes the case that 
even though we haven't heard him say the N-word, we have heard him say S-hole countries. We have heard him refer to Mexicans as rapists. We have seen him declare a national emergency in order to uh, procure funding to build a wall to stop this so-called infestation, which is a very derogatory term uh, for for immigrants coming, attempting even legally to come into this country. So there's all of that. But also, one of the things that the, – the thing that has always stuck out to me about this president, and, and historians are very reluctant to say something is unprecedented because there's almost always a pattern in history. There's almost always at least uh, an example of someone or something that mirrors whatever we're looking at in the present. Uh, so a lot of people have compared Donald Trump to other presidents like like Nixon, Andrew Jackson, <laughs> uh, a lot of folks. And folks have also tried to figure out, well, what's different about this president? Is is he unique or um, are we just living through a particularly bad presidency and other folks have lived, lived through bad presidencies too? I, I think what, if anything, what makes Donald Trump unique as a president is this. He doesn't want the job. He never did want it. It's never been about patriotism or even politics with this man. Everything from the campaign to the presidency itself, it's about personal vanity. That's essentially what Cohen described. He said this, I quote, Mr. Trump did not run for president to make the country great. Instead, he ran the greatest infomercial in political history for his business. He never expected to win the primary. He never expected to win the general election. The campaign for him was always a marketing opportunity. And Cohen goes on to say that because of that, he fears that if Trump loses the reelection next year in 2020, quote, there will never be a peaceful transition of power. Now that strikes me. I mean, we sort of all already know that this is so much of what the president does is about getting attention for himself. And we're finding out more and more, it's about him getting more money for himself and his businesses. But it was all, according to Cohen, his closest personal uh, employee and advisor, that it was the greatest infomercial in political history, that he never expected to win, that it was always a marketing opportunity. And if Trump is good at anything, it's at marketing himself. It's about it's, 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 he's good at always being the center of attention and making himself the center of attention. So much so that we're overwhelmed. I mean, every single day there's a headline about the president. And you're like, oh, well, it's the president, of course. No, not every single day. Like there's other stuff going on. There's other politicians. There's other events, but somehow Trump manages to make it always about himself. And then when another bad thing happens, he comes out with something else outlandish to make other people to make us focus on that and sort of forget about this cascade of other issues that we're already supposed to be dealing with. So that's what gets me about this president. He doesn't want the job. Now, it's one thing to be bad at the job, but still want it. You know, it's another thing, it's one thing to to have someone in office whose policies you disagree with, whose platform you disagree with, but the person wants the job. And so they're going to do their best to honor the office. They're going to do their best to comport themselves in a dignified manner worthy of the responsibility that they have. But in my view, not this president. 
And it's because he never thought he would get the job and never really wanted the job. He's not there to serve others. He's there to be served in a very self-aggrandizing way. And that, to me, is what makes him unique as far as I can tell, also what makes him particularly pernicious in the office of president. Basically, Cohen said to Republicans and those who support Donald Trump, he said, I'm your cautionary tale. He said, I ignored my own conscience to get close to this magnetic person of power. And that's a very powerful statement. It is so seductive to be around people who have power or fame or platform. Because by getting near them, you think it rubs off on you. You think some advantage will accrue to yourself. And it's very intoxicating, as, as, as Cohen said, to, to, to be around that and to be part of this inner circle where a lot of things are happening and people show deference to this person you're following and then they show deference to you because you have access to that person. That's a human dilemma. And, and, and Cohen got caught up in it with a person who was, you know, a, um, a wealthy person, inherited his wealth, who, who was a television star who became president. And, and it just sort of kept increasing in terms of exposure and platform and power. And, and he wanted to be a part of that. But he's telling the politicians and the citizens who support this man that he doesn't have good character. Not that Cohen does, which is the argument that, that a lot of Republicans made in the hearing. Why should we listen to the testimony of a liar? Well, again, He's already been caught in his lies. He's going to jail for them. He has nothing to lose by telling the truth and everything to lose if he continues to lie. He would get harsher sentences and uh, more scrutiny, and, and he wants that gone. So even a liar can tell the truth when he realizes he's been caught in his lies and is already facing the consequences. But he's saying, look, don't get caught up in this power. Don't get caught up in the fact that, you know, a Republican is in the White House right now. It's not all worth it when you consider what you have to sacrifice in terms of integrity and character. And so I think it's a very powerful uh, testimony. Others disagreed, and you can look on my Facebook wall for that. They think Cohen's a liar. They think um, this is a, a witch hunt uh, out to get Trump, um, all of this, you know, but that's just my perspective watch the testimony or read the highlights and decide for yourself. Last thing I'll say about about Cohen is actually dovetails on some other stuff that I think is really important. A couple of things I am seeing in 2019 that I think are going to be really important in 2020. It's this talk of socialism. So basically what often happens in politics in general, but often from the right, is that they make uh, certain words boogeyman like when you hear those words it's a trigger and you know that you know avoid it at all cost and one of those words is socialism so this term has gotten a lot more traction particularly with bernie sanders presidential uh run in trying to get the democratic nomination for the 2016 election cycle and he is a, a far left progressive who honestly, made some of these conversations part of uh, the national dialogue, something like like Medicare for All and, and uh, Green New Deal. But that's those are also causes 
that have really been amplified by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is a first-term representative from New York. And she has self-avowedly declared herself a democratic socialist. And so this term is actually, you know, it, it, it's, it's in the air. It's, it's not just being made up and pulled out of nowhere. It's part of the conversation, but there's nuance to this. So what Republicans are doing right now is setting up socialism as the only way to be socialist is to be this authoritarian demagogue. And then they point to Venezuela, which is a country in shambles being run by an autocratic dictator who is, um, you know, running a socialist country. And they say, we don't want to be Venezuela. And in the uh, State of the Union, in fact, the president says, you know, we're not going to be a socialist country. And then uh, Vice President Pence this week said essentially the same thing. He says, you have Democrats who, who basically want to make us into another Venezuela. And obviously, that's extreme rhetoric. That's that's obviously not nuanced. That's obviously not what folks are advocating. What democratic socialists or, or uh, progressives in politics are advocating are for the more just and equitable distribution of resources from healthcare to education funds to uh, transforming the economy uh, to, to be carbon free and green in light of climate change, those kinds of things. Now, I'm not advocating for any position or not. I'm advocating for nuance, for deep, detailed understanding. And what I'm saying, especially to white evangelicals, is don't get caught up in the rhetoric. Don't let these words become trigger words for fear and loathing. Do the research, do the work, figure out what it means. But any issues on voting rights, on education policy, on tax policy, we need to have a, a cultivate critical inquiry and don't just let the talking heads use these buzzwords to automatically paint and label folks and therefore you don't consider them at all. That's basically what happens in religious circles when you're part of a conservative, a theologically conservative tradition and you call someone liberal, that means you can't trust them at all. That means you don't access them, you don't learn from them. And I think, honestly, that impoverishes the church. And then in political terms, I think it impoverishes us as citizens not to weigh and sift and consider perspectives uh, and just let, you know, sort of news or headlines beam these terms at us without really understanding them and then voting accordingly. It is the end of Black History Month. We are officially in the month of March, which, by the way, is Women's History Month. So way to go, women. We need you. We love you. Thank you. You you do too much uh, for too little credit. And hopefully at Pass the Mic and the Witness, we can be part of the solution. So we honor you not only this month, but for all the year, 24-7. In a similar way, as we look at Black History Month coming to a close, we have to ask ourselves, now what? A lot of the criticism for Black History Month is that it's just one month. And then what do you do the other 11 months out of year? Now, I personally think Black History Month is very valuable and I celebrate it because I think there is value in having a focused time to think about black history. Because we can say as much as we want to say, well, we should celebrate black history throughout the year, but we really don't. And by having Black History Month, at least there's one portion of the year set aside where nationally we can all think about this, write about it, read about it, learn about it. And I think that's good. But it it, it is legitimate to ask, well, what comes next? 
I have a couple thoughts on that. One, I think in terms of sort of leading a life of anti-racism, what's helpful for me is something I call the ARC of Racial Justice. Um, it's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, and Commitment. I won't go into all that because I've talked about it before and uh, on, on Pass the Mic, and it's in the book. So if you want to read more about it, read The Color of Compromise. It's uh, chapter 11, I believe, called The Fierce Urgency of Now. You can read all about the arc of racial justice. So that's one way to sort of practice anti-racism, be conscious of race, but try to be helpful and part of the solution, not only in February, but throughout the year. The other thing came to me as um, as I was giving a talk uh, so I was recently at Baylor University. Uh, that's actually my second time there this year. Um, I'm very humbled that they invited me back. So shout out to Mrs. Pearl Beverly. She's the head of multicultural affairs there. She's a black woman who's been there for decades and is an institution in and of herself. Shout out to the Black Student Union. I got to sit with them at the Black Heritage Month banquet, which is where I spoke. These were incredible young people, um, just so full of vigor and passion and personality, and I'm excited for what God's going to do in their lives and how they'll come to serve others. Shout out to the seminarians from Truett who came out to hear me speak earlier in the day as I talked about history as activism. But at, at the banquet, I talked about uh, stuff I wish I'd known as an undergraduate student and, I, and, and basically focused on this idea that you don't have to choose between faith or activism, but in fact, the Christian faith should lead us to be activists. And so I unpacked that and I ended with a simple suggestion. Learn the truth, tell the truth. You want to know how to celebrate Black History Month in April and May and every day? It's this. Learn the truth, tell the truth. So in the arc of racial justice, learning is part of the awareness part. And you can learn a lot of different ways. You can watch documentaries, uh, read books, go on pilgrimage, et cetera, et cetera. It just means equipping yourself with knowledge about how racism works. And by the way, black people, it's not enough just to be black for you to be able to talk in a qualified manner about race. You actually have to study this stuff. Yes, we have legitimate lived experiences, but we need to add to that knowledge through disciplined study of the history of racism, the sociology of racism, the theology that goes behind race and ethnicity from a biblical perspective. Uh, so we need to do our homework too. So awareness is part of it. But in terms of action, it doesn't really have to get more complicated than this. Tell the truth. So when you learn statistics like one in three black males will likely go to prison compared to one in 17 white males, you learn that truth and you tell the truth. When you learn that black mothers die in maternity-related deaths at three times the rate of white women, you learn that truth and then you tell that truth. When you learn that black wealth is about 2% of white median family wealth, you learn the truth and you tell the truth. Basically, what I'm saying is don't just get a big head full of all of this knowledge and then sort of keep it in. And most of the time when we keep it in, it's because of fear. We're afraid of the reaction we'll get when we tell the truth that we've learned. We're afraid of what our relatives or friends will say. We're afraid of the knock to our reputation. We're afraid of the names they'll call us. We're even afraid that we won't get it right, that we don't yet know enough. I think for listeners to this podcast, that might be the most common fear, uh, is that you don't want to get it wrong. And I appreciate that. 
But at some point, you got to get out there and you got to try. And what I'm saying is the action step doesn't have to be more complicated than telling the truth. Because when you tell the truth, you challenge people. And when you challenge people, they'll get angry. Uh, So be cautious. I mean, there's real risk out there. But at the same time, when you tell the truth, you're going to learn more about what you need to do. You're going to learn more about who you need to tell these truths to. And white folks, this is especially for you. You have a lot of truth telling to do to other white people. See, there are a lot of white folks who will never listen to this podcast. There are a lot of white folks who, if you somehow got them to listen, will, 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 will be absolutely fuming at the perspectives that I've shared on here because they can't see it from a black person's perspective. Uh, but you can be that translator. And it saves us as people of color a whole lot of work if you serve as that initial sort of voice in, in, in that person's life to say, listen, there are other ways to think about it than what you're thinking or what you've been taught. And so you learn these things by listening to this podcast, by, by listening to other voices from people of color. And then you tell the truth and you tell the truth in the hard places. And this is for people of color too. Uh, now, we have a different burden because we have to be strategic in our activism. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Our very survival is a form of resistance. But sometimes we do need to speak up, and sometimes we need to tell the truth, and maybe even to be, may even uh, be speaking to our own folks, our skin folk as well. Um, but it's telling the truth, and, and I can almost guarantee you that when you tell the truth, you will know what else you have to do. The next steps will become apparent, uh, either because of the pushback you get or the receptivity that you get. You'll know how to continue down this line. So we celebrate black history and heritage when we learn the truth and tell the truth. Thanks for listening to this episode of Footnotes. Please leave a review. Give me some input, whether you like it, love it, hate it. Facebook at The Witness BCC on Twitter at underscore past the mic. We appreciate you listening. I'm Jamar Tisby, and we'll see you later. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?